Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. I'm Stephen Robles and today we have a very special guest, Jay Watts, the founder and president of Merely Human Ministries, Atlanta, Georgia. And we're going to talk to him about the abortion issue, especially what's been happening recently in New York and the passing of some legislation in that regard. So Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and history in this uh, issue? I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm an outlier, I guess, in all of this, and that I didn't I never I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I wasn't Christian growing up. I was actually an atheist all through college, uh, and was a pretty outspoken one at that. And I was pro-choice, so I was pretty argumentative about both of those positions, and enjoyed mixing it up with Christians and trying to upset them. I, I particularly didn't like Christians, and they hated me, so we had a nice mutual relationship going. <laughs> um, af- after college. I became convinced by several things. The two major things would probably be something which I did not know the name of it at the time, but something like the moral argument for the existence of God and something like the historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus. But through a series of events, both those things became something I was considering as I lost what I considered lost so much faith in my atheistic viewpoint or the idea that atheism was the best explanation for the world that I lived in and gravitated towards some other explanation of the world, or at least looking Mm. for it. I would say I was strongly agnostic for a period as I was just examining the world around me. Those two arguments, without knowing their names at the time, without having the apologetic resources, but examining them and and discovering them led me to a belief in God and ultimately to consider the claims of Jesus where I became a Christian. Now, early on in my Christian life, I mean, really one of the first prayers I ever said, having come out at the time that I was at college, um, you know, a different form of Operation Rescue that exists today was popular. And in the misconceptions of what it was, even as it got to me as an atheist and a pro-choicer, uh, I just did not like the way this issue was engaged across the board. And so one of the first prayers I remember ever saying as a Christian was, God, now that I believe that you're there, I'm willing to do anything you want with my life. But I would appreciate if I never have to talk about abortion again. It's just an <laughs> awful, horrible thing. And I have no interest in ever discussing that with another human being for the rest of my life. And and so over a 10-year period or something less probably than 10 years, I began to change what I personally believed about what the issue of abortion. So gradually, just as information came to me as I looked things over, as my view of the world and morality changed, so did my view on abortion. Although those were personally held beliefs, they weren't activated in any way. I wasn't in any way out there arguing with people or talking to them. If you'd asked me, probably would have told you I was pro-life at the time. But what happened was uh, through a series of events where I became, I decided I was not happy with the job that I had and not just not happy with the idea of what I didn't like, what I was doing for a living, but I liked the idea of being able to talk about God for a living. And so really I I started to pivot away from this life at a point and say, I want to find some way to talk about God for a living. I want to find out where that's central to what I do. Uh, and, And that was in my early 30s. Uh, and so what happened was without any formal training in ministry, I sort of embarked on this idea to find out what was going on in the world and the ministry side of things. I went and talked to my pastor, who's a pastor of a very large church, and he t- he gave me a list of things that people do in ministry. And I said, no, I'm not interested in any of those jobs. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, he said, well, what do you want to do? I mean, you act like you feel called to be in ministry, but you keep telling me that none of these jobs in ministry interest you. I said, well, I don't know. I just want to talk. I just want to do something meaningful that has something to do with my relationship with God. And so... He said, in a, in a moment of pure genius, and the thing that really set me off for the rest of my life on where my path would go, he said, what I want to do is I'm going to give you a Sunday, a Wednesday night class at our church, and you can teach anything you want. Let's see if that brings you some clarity. And what happened was I taught a, a lesson, a series of lessons 
on something like worldview lessons at the time that were, let's examine a particular aspect of our culture. And what, what I genuinely still believe was something I believed even then as, as somebody who didn't grow up Christian but came to the church later. I think that the church and the people in the church are far more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, far too, far more modest than the Bible is and how we approach things. If what, mm. And what I mean by that is the Bible isn't afraid to talk about sin in, in, in terms that oftentimes would be gross or embarrassing to us in the modern church. And it seemed to me that we, that fear of being able to address things as they were set us back in being able to have an effective witness against them in the culture. Uh, as an atheist, I was never afraid to talk about things that might be embarrassing to other people. As a Christian, all of a sudden I was being told, we don't talk about that polite company. Well, if you can't talk about it, you can't name it. If you can't name it, you can't identify it or evaluate it. So now the whole world is out there doing something that you're afraid to even talk about. And by the time you pick up the courage to say something about it, it's way too late. They've moved right. on to something worse, and you're just now working yourself up to be comfortable talking about that, something that's really in the rearview mirror of culture at this time. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I taught these lessons in an effort to work around that idea. I said, let's look at violence. Let's look at the value of human life. Let's look at sexual sin. Let's look at idolatry. And let's look at the way the world actually is and see if we can find some reason to, to explain why the world is one way, why God teaches another way, and why the church is so afraid to, to embrace any kind of witness against these in a meaningful way, why we're sheepish wow. about those things. Yeah. The, the first thing that I studied was violence. And this was providential for me in the sense that what I did for months, and, and my wife will tell you, I'm an obsessive guy. Once I start <laughs> getting interested in things, my interest is upset, obsessive. I, I, my, my, my kids, my kids even now joke about it because I came home from a trip where I was out speaking and I had watched Won't You Be My Neighbor on the plane home. And suddenly I owned Won't You Be My Neighbor and I had a book about Fred Rogers and I was watching oh, that's videos funny. about him all, all, all the time. And so my kids, like a friend of ours came over and they're like, what is with all this Mr. Rogers stuff? And my, <laughs> my son who's 16 is like, dad just saw something and this is what we all have to live with now. So uh, I was studying violence for months. Mm. And when I studied that, I studied everything I could get my hands on, what the Hutus did to the Tutsis in Rwanda, oh, wow. uh, what happened in chattel slavery here in the United States, what happened under Stalinistic Soviet Union, what happened in uh, Hitler, uh, Nazi Germany, what happened in Pol Pot's uh, uh, um, Cambodia. Uh, you know, anywhere where I could see man just being blatantly and obviously inhumane to their fellow man, I looked at it. And something happens when you look at all of these different things, and even more than that. There's a question that I kept asking. Like, well, in every one of these places, there was a Christian, right? There were Christians there. And in the overwhelming number of majority of Christians in these places just laid low, did nothing about them. And in the worst cases, they defended them. Like in the South where I live, there were Christians that needed the Bible to defend slavery, which was an obvious institutional evil. So that question keeps arising. If I lived there, what would I be? If I, were, if, if I were there at that time, how would I behave? How would I approach this? Next, after that, I move on to studying about the value of human life. And although I'm already personally pro-life, the more I start to read about the numbers that we see in the world, the way that abortion is done, uh, the way that we treat the unborn, not just through this, but in other things, as I started to examine that, I, I was forced to confront something. If what I believe about the unborn, a conditional statement, if what I believe about the unborn are true or is true, then we live in a time where the intentional destruction of human life is happening on a scale that is almost unimaginable, something far eclipsing many of the things that I was questioning myself on and those things that I was researching before. So if they're or truly what I believe they are, and what's happening is an inarguable matter of data. I mean, you can't argue about it. It just is what it is. We, everybody agrees about the numbers. Then 
I live in a time where something horrible is happening and I'm doing nothing. I'm not, I, have, I have no witness, no voice. I'm doing absolutely nothing in the face of this. And so I spent time trying to, to change what I believe. So my first step, because I got three things here, right? I got how I believe, I have what's happening, and have how I'm responding to that. And so I can change this by changing what I believe about the unborn. So I tried to convince myself that they weren't fully human, failed miserably to do that. And so the only other thing that was allowed to change in that, if I continue to believe that they're human and I know what's happening, is how I respond to it. And so a friend of mine said, why don't you go volunteer at the pregnancy center, local pregnancy center. I went down there and volunteered. During my volunteer meeting, they offered me a job. Uh, I took the job. The first thing I did on the job was they said, you're going to have to organize a banquet. Our speaker is Scott Klusendorf, and I was familiar with Scott's work. Scott and I met. We became friends. Three years later, when I left the pregnancy center, I went to work with him. Uh, I helped him build LTI when it was just he and Steve when I first got there, Steve Weimer. Uh, and then after a year of helping build it, he said, I want you out there speaking. We've gotten great feedback from you. He said, you have to make a choice right now. You're either administrative development coordinator helping us build this organization or you're full-time out there speaking and writing and defending the lives of the unborn. And he said, and, I, and Ed, let me make it clear to you, you belong on the second. Get out there and start wow. arguing and making your case. And so that's how I got there. I worked with him for eight years and then I moved on to start my own organization. Wow. So Jay, we know, uh, I know that you actually go around and you've done this talk, these, you know, you've talked on this issue at Harvard I think uh, UNC, uh, many other campuses where they're not exactly uh, fans of your point of view. <laughs> so you're you're often in the space where you're not talking to Christians about these things. How, what, I guess, what would the central issue be with this topic? And then how do you argue for your position? Yeah, that, that's a great question because I do, I do get to speak and I mean get to, it's a privilege to speak oftentimes in front of audiences where people are are against the view. And sometimes I've been, I think the biggest crowd I've ever been in front of was probably like 1,200 people, where I would say 98% of the room, people disagreed with me and didn't like what I was saying. Wow. You have to have a strategy when you engage this culture. And the strategy that I learned from Scott Klusendorf, that I learned from Greg Kokel, that I learned from the great people that came before me is this. We focus on the central question, the one thing that determines the right or wrong of abortion, which is what is the unborn? Now, we recognize that there's a lot of things wrong with abortion, but if we have two minutes, five minutes, one moment in front of somebody to make our case, we don't want to talk about everything that's wrong with abortion. What we want to talk about is why is abortion wrong? And if it's wrong, it's wrong because it unjustly takes the life of an innocent human being. So we focus on that question, what is the unborn? How do we answer that question? Are they like us? Or are they not? Why are we allowed to kill them in a way we wouldn't kill other human beings? The next question that we do is we argue, we argue using the science of embryology to determine when a human life begins, and we argue philosophy, a different discipline to argue that human beings have value by virtue of what they are, and that differences of size, level, development, environment, or degree of dependency, what we call the SLED acronym, cannot do the philosophical work necessary to justify our intuition of universal human value and universal human dignities. Differences that we all have, degrees, size, we're different sizes, we're different rational capacities, we're in different places, we have different levels of dependence. If, if we ground our value in those things, our value becomes subject to that same variation and that same degrees and those same episodic. It has to be grounded in something that we universally share. So if we're all human, which we are, and we're all valuable, which explains this intuition that we have that it's wrong, like what's going on in Yemen right now is wrong, then we have to explain why in a thing that is as unvarying 
is our humanity, and only that humanity is as un, is unvarying. It's the only place where we have something common that we can ground a universal human dignity and a universal human value. And then finally, of my strategy, what is the unborn? Science tells us that they're whole, distinct, and living humans from the moment they come into existence. Philosophy tells us they're valuable by virtue of what they are. And my final strategy is argue well. And what I mean by that as a Christian is I want to argue in a way that will honor Christ. I want to recognize that if I am arguing that all people have value and ought to be treated with dignity and respect, that includes people who disagree with me, that includes people who hate me. And so you have to – now, each one of those components that I just talked about, I could talk about for hours. Focusing on the question, what is the unborn, we could talk about that for hours. The right. science of embryology, we could talk about that for hours. The philosophy, we could talk about that for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Uh, and, and then the last one, we could spend a lot of time talking about how meaningful it is to learn how to engage people, where what I try to tell people is we're not trying to win arguments. Our goal is to win people with good arguments. So the, 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 the person in front of me it is my goal to give them the information that they need to live in accordance with the truth of the world around them. I believe that what I'm arguing is the truth of the world around them, that they living in accordance with that truth will be in a better position than they are if they're living with a false understanding of the world around them. And so I'm not trying to beat them down with the information that I have, embarrass them or separate them or isolate them from me. What I'm trying to do is equip them to evaluate the world around them in a better way, in a way that is, it is going to get them more living in accordance with the truth of the world in which they find themselves. Just like I used to be an error, and I now believe I live in, in, in happiness, a much happier, much more fulfilled, much more honest life where I'm living in accordance with the truth. I want the, to give them the same opportunity to change from living in error to living within the truth. And so I have to argue in a way that recognizes that if I'm arguing with just a, where I dig my heels in and I'm just going to go after the person personally, long after they have stopped rejecting my arguments, they'll keep rejecting me as a human being. And so we argue in a way that, that honors Christ and honors the dignity of the people that I'm arguing with in order to help them change from the position that they hold. Wow. So good. Hi, Jay Nerva here. I have a question. Um, hi, can you give a couple scientific nuggets, like for a person that may not be reached uh, philosophically or definitely biblically? Okay, the, the science of embryology. I just had this discussion with my kids. Uh, we were discussing in light of a lot of the things that happened this week. I said, you know, guys, sit down. And I have a 16, a 14, and a 10-year-old. And I said, uh, how would you talk about these things? And so when I was going over with my kids, I said, let's remember the science of embryology. The science that's job it is to determine when a new organism, I said, tells us that it's a whole distinct and living human organism from the moment it comes into existence. Now, let's talk about those three things really quickly. Whole. It's not a part of something else. My body is filled with constituent parts. Cells that are alive, that have a full complement of genetic information in them, but exist to serve as a constituent part, this whole organism that I am. They are working in concert and cooperation in a coordinated effort with a whole bunch of other cells that are doing different things to serve this organism. From the moment these things come into existence, from the moment that we have a zygotic human being, a single-celled embryo, they are a whole in and of themselves. They don't exist to serve another organism. They are an organism, independent, whole, distinct. They are different from any cell in the body of their mother and their father, and they are living they have cellular reproduction, which means they're growing. They have cellular respiratory metabolism, which means that they are taking energy and transforming it uh, into something that can be used towards their organization or their organism, and they respond to stimuli. So they're whole, distinct, and living human beings from the moment they come into existence. And this is almost 
universally accepted, even within pro-choice arguments, of the people who argue at a sophisticated level. Uh, I would say another nugget, if we're going to talk about the science of it, to keep in mind, uh, is the idea of people will say things like, Mr. Watts, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a clump of cells. I, I had that happen recently up in Connecticut. This young woman got very angry with me, and she said, I don't understand how you could say a clump of cells is as valuable as I am. I said, well, what, what do you mean by a clump of cells? And she said, I don't understand the question. I said, well, you know, by some, by some definitions, you're a clump of cells. I'm a clump of cells. But when you say they're just a clump of cells, what do you mean? Uh, because if what you mean is they're just sort of an undifferentiated mass of cells, well, now we have to get into the idea of how, how specific and how organized would they have to be when they are a single cell for you to refrain from killing them. They, they are not merely a clump of undifferentiated cells. Each cell is developing towards some end. Even from the moment they come into existence, the science of embryology actually is seeing differentiation and specialization earlier and earlier all the time. At points where we thought we had these, these totipotent cells, which means it's a cell that can become anything, the only purely totipotent cell would be the first cell that exists, the zygote. We're seeing it's basically, it might be pluripotent, which means it can become a lot of things, but they seem to organize the same way every time so that these that migrate to this part of the inner cell mass will become this part of the body, and these that migrate to this part of the inner cell mass become that part of the body. So even though we can't see that differentiation yet, apparently the body's already making differentiations in that organism very early on. So if what you're saying is it's just a clump of cells, you need to define for me what you mean, because all life is merely a clump of cells by some examination. But if what you mean is that there is no coordinated there's no coordinated mechanism within it that is differentiating between the cells and putting them to use at the different parts of the organism, well, that's, that's false on its face. From the very mm. beginning, we see this thing developing in accordance with a, with a predictable pattern. This pattern is so predictable. We're, we know exactly where these cells are going and when with such predictability that when they don't, we know that that's a problem. We look at them and say, well, they should be here by now. They're almost always here because human beings develop in accordance with this very predictable pattern. Missing or these things being absent means that something has gone wrong with this developmental arc. That's how predictable it is. It is It is. It can be charted to an incredibly accurate predictability. And so, so I was like, look, it's, it's not a clump of cells. It's an organism, a, a nascent human organism very early in its life that does not yet resemble you and I and look like you and I, but is the same as you and I in very important ways. And that most important thing, it is a whole distinct and living human organism. Though it doesn't have fingernails or hair or look like you in any way, it doesn't mean that it's not like you in important ways. And, and, and one other important distinction that I made to her is I'm not saying it's the same as you, the same way I'm not saying you're the same as a geriatric human being or that I'm the same as a newborn. I'm saying it's the same as you in one important aspect. It is a human life. That's the similarity, and that's the end of the similarities. And it doesn't have to be exactly where you are in its stage of development for you to refrain from killing it. And, and that's, all, that's the basic duty or obligation that I'm asking you. I don't want you to give a social security number. Don't throw it a birthday party. Don't invite it over to your house. Don't do any of those things. Don't give it a license to drive. You simply refrain from killing it. Wow. So good. That's Compelling. good. You know, hey, Jay, maybe you can help me out. I'm in a bit of a quandary here because um, uh, Alyssa Milano tweeted out the other day. She said, there isn't a side in this debate that isn't pro-life. I am pro-life. I'm also pro-choice. Those killing me, sorry, those calling me an infant killer are anti-choice. And then she says this, 
Once again, your religious beliefs do not carry more weight than scientific facts and my physical autonomy. And so she's saying, you know, it's it's your religious beliefs that are driving your pro-life views. And you're saying that, no, actually, the the most sophisticated defenders of pro-choice that you come in contact with, the academics, are actually agreeing with you. They agree with that first part. There's with two that parts first part. of the argument. Correct. They agree that it's a, it's a, it's a human life. Yeah, they, right. they, there is the sophisticated people in that argument. Alyssa, no offense to Alyssa Milano. I don't know her, and I don't, as a Christian, I don't like to go around, you know, maligning people. But right. that statement that you just said was just a mess. It's right. a, it's, a, it's a, it's a very confused mess, and not understanding the different things that are being discussed within it. Uh, you could say you're one of the reasons somebody could say they're pro-life and still support the pro-choice position is if they they have broadly defined pro-life. And that's something we're dealing with today. People will right. say, well, I'm pro-life, but I'm against all these other things. I'm for refugees. I'm against the death penalty. Uh, I am for, uh, you know, a certain amount of the welfare state. And so they take all of these things and they throw them in and say, I am pro-life on all of these things. Uh, and so the reason, just because I say women should be able to make the choice to get an abortion doesn't mean that I'm not more broadly pro-life. That's one thing that they can mean, which is right. in itself, itself a trick of language because pro-life prior to them expanding that definition in the last 10 years simply meant that I'm against abortion. Right. I mean, that was just how everybody understood it. So they changed right. the definition so they could run around saying that this is pro-life as well. The other thing that you can mean is that I'm personally opposed to the pro-life position. I mean, I'm personally opposed to abortion, uh, but I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people what they can do. Now, this is where people confuse objective moral claims with claims of personal preference. Uh, like where I may say I love Coke and hate Pepsi or I love green apples but hate red apples. Those things are both true of me, by the way. Uh, Neither <laughs> one of those statements in any way obligates you to agree with me. And they think that's the kind of statement we're making when we say abortion is wrong. They get confused and think I'm saying I like pe- I like Coke, hate Pepsi. I like the pro-life position, hate the pro-choice position. And when, and when I meet Christians, oftentimes they'll say that to me. They'll say – uh, you know, I, I, many of us have had this almost exact same conversation. I'll say, well, I, I'm personally pro-life, but I'm publicly or, or, or politically pro-choice. I ask a question. Number one, why, why would you identify yourself as personally pro-life? They almost always tell me the same thing. Well, I think it's wrong to kill another human being. And many of them will tell me I think it's wrong to kill. I think abortion kills babies. I think it's wrong personally, but I can never tell somebody else what to do. So was that, is that why you identify yourself as pro-choice? Why would you identify yourself as pro-choice? Because I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people what they can do. So, okay, great. Can I narrate this? And this is a great tool for having a conversation with someone. Yeah. Narrate the conversation as it goes. Let's re-examine what everybody said so we make sure there's been no error, that I haven't misunderstood you. So, right. so can I narrate the conversation back with you for a second before we move on? They'll say yes. They'll say, okay, you told me that you're personally pro-life because you think abortion kills innocent human beings. You actually said you think it kills babies. But you said you're politically pro-choice because you don't think you should be allowed to tell other people that they're not allowed to kill human beings. You don't think you should be allowed to tell other people that they're not a kill, allowed to kill babies. And they'll look at me, and I've never had one of them look at me and not respond by saying, that doesn't sound right when you say it like that. So, mm. said, but does it accurately reflect what you just said to me? And they said, yes, it does, and there's something wrong with that. I said, it is. You've just mistaken the difference between a, an objective moral claim and a preference claim. When we say abortion is wrong, what we mean it's wrong like child abuse and rape and things that you wouldn't uncontroversially argue against in that same, same way. But you've put it in the category of Coke and Pepsi, green and red apples. Uh, and, and finally, let me say this really quickly about her claim about religion. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, first of all, it's not a religious argument. I'm using science and philosophy. Secondly, why are religious motivations automatically excluded from the court of public opinion? Why right. is it that I'm not allowed? Why would you be allowed to argue from your secular position and I not be allowed to argue from my That's Christian good. position simply right. because you decided that your secular position is 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 a priori superior to my religious position without argument? Right. You didn't make an argument that it better explains the world that we live in. You just decided that your position by virtue of rejecting God is better than mine by virtue of believing in God. And finally, you're, you're not rejecting religious people in the court of public opinion. Or What you're doing is you're, reje you're selectively rejecting them. Nobody gets mad when Bono's Christianity drives them to go out there and help Africa. Nobody's upset when our Christianity drives us to help the homeless. Nobody's upset with all of the things that we do all over the world in the name of Christ. But when man, when we step on their toes about something like abortion, it suddenly gets your religion out of our lives. Well, yes. no, you don't get to pick and choose. Right. And you don't get to tell us that the reasons that we use are somehow inferior to yours without making that argument publicly because exactly. you're not going to be able to make it because you can't tell the majority of people that are going to have some religious expression or, or foundation for their beliefs that they're not allowed to be involved in public policy because their religious belief, because they believe in God and you don't, because, and that makes your views better for the public. You got you to gotta make that argument. You don't get to assume that. Right. Yeah, it sounds like there's a uh, the faulty epistemology of scientism going on there. And like you said, being unargued for, it just it can't stand because, you know, of course, her claim itself is not an item of science. And if she holds to the view that only science leads to truth, then her claim itself doesn't pass that bar. Um, and, secular, and secularism is superior without argument. Exactly. You know, and, and, and so, well, no, you have to make you're going to have to make that argument. Yep. In, in what ways does that? most benefit society to exclude religious belief of all sort, right? not just Christian, all religious belief, and make sure that society is built entirely on secular beliefs uh, without Christians. Because if I argue that prostitution is, uh, is wrong, or if I argue that vi rape is wrong, and if I argue that child abuse is wrong, and I'm driven to make those arguments because I'm a Christian man who believes in the image bearers of God, and they ought to be treated with dignity and respect, the fact that I'm a religious person making those arguments doesn't make those arguments invalid. They're right. still going to have to deal with the nature of the way that I'm arguing. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the things underlying that, probably for young people especially, is a misunderstanding of the separation of church and state. And uh, we've kind of completely misunderstood what the founders meant by that. Um, and so we, we kind of adopt this naked public square, as Oz Guinness calls it, where you can't bring any religious motivations or even a worldview to bear on public questions. And like you said, that's a really uh, a false way to, to do things that doesn't work at the end of the day or the beginning yeah, of the it's day. Just, it's dishonest because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's dishonest because they have a worldview, because right. they have an anthropology. Because right. they have a theology. They have all of those things, and they're bringing all of that to bear. They have a way of understanding how to answer the big world, big questions in the world, and they're bringing all of it to bear the same way the rest of us are. They're right. just telling us because their specific worldview is grounded in materialistic naturalism or secularism or something or, or secular humanism that by their definition it's superior to ours. But I didn't agree to that. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And so they need to argue for it. And, right. And, you know, I've been down this road. And, and so um, and so is history. You know, we can look at different places where we've been down this road and say right. that doesn't seem to work out all the time when you remove all of those things from considerations. No, for sure. And thankfully, Dr. King, Martin Luther King, didn't agree with that point of view. And he argued, 
often, you know, for his move of civil rights was grounded in the fact that human beings were made in the image of God. And he, of course, appealed back to the Declaration of Independence as the promissory note to say all men are created equal. We need to apply that consistently. And so I think you're dead on. Um, so just to, just to go back, you said, so the science isn't really, the debate about the abortion issue doesn't really center on the science because yourself and pro-choice advocates can see from embryology that it's pretty clear what the thing is. So would the debate lie more in the philosophical arguments then? Yeah. And, l- and let me be clear when I say the pro-choice people, I'm not talking about the Twitter verse, you know, that that's a cesspool <laughs> of stupidity. I'm talking oh. about the sophisticated, <laughs> the, the, the sophisticated people out there, you know, who, who, who think about this. Yeah. They acknowledge the humanity of the unborn. They just say it's the type of human that doesn't get any moral consideration. And so that's, and I, I warn people who are arguing about this. I said, don't make the mistake of saying that, that science proves it's human. Therefore abortion is wrong. That's not true. Science proves it's human, and now we have to make a philosophical argument about the nature of human beings and what makes us valuable. And that's where we're disagreeing. They'll okay. say that there is a category of humans. They're going to draw a line through humanity, and they're going to say there are things that are human that are not persons or not valuable humans, to which I, know I owe no duty or obligation. And okay. then there are those humans that are like me. And then there's people like what Christopher Kayser, the Catholic philosopher, calls the inclusive view of human value, where people like me argue all human beings, all human life ought to be treated with dignity and respect. They all ought to be included in the family of valuable human life. And any separation between one human and another as valuable and not valuable, anybody that can draw a line through humanity and says these over here are persons and then on the other side, these are just merely humans and they don't matter in the same way, anybody that attempts to do that has to justify that move. They have to explain how they have been given the authority to draw a line through humanity. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 and so this is where the argument comes. What makes us valuable? And on a, on a personal level, when I'm talking to people to help them see this, I usually ask them a question. I say, would it be objectively wrong for you to kill me or for me to kill you right now? And almost everybody I've ever asked that question to said yes. Almost everybody. I had two people. Uh, oddly enough, they were both out of San Francisco. I'm not saying that there's a correlation there, but it was there that I had these two people say, no, it would not be objectively wrong if we killed each other right now. Well, if somebody says that, if they say no, then what that means is that they don't believe in the existence of objective moral values. So there's no reason to try to convince them abortion is wrong because they don't think anything's really wrong, not capital W wrong. They think that it's subjective. They think it's personal. They think it's preference. They think it's cultural. But they don't believe in this idea of real wrongs. And so mm. there we have to so we have to step back and have a worldview conversation with that person. We have to, we have to determine how they're seeing the world because they're never you can't convince them that something's wrong when they don't believe in wrongs. Uh, but if they say yes, as almost everybody does, that means that the person in front of me accepts that objective moral values exist. They accept that they govern our lives. They accept that even though they and I don't know each other, that it would be wrong for us to kill each other so that we have moral duties and obligations, responsibilities and accountability, even when we don't know the person. And so the next question after they say yes is what changed? What changed from the embryo or fetus that you once were to the more mature person standing in front of me now? If I killed you then, it would have been a constitutionally protected right. By, by definition, by somebody like Ronald Dworkin, legal philosopher Ronald Dworkin, he said, there's nothing wrong I could do to you. You weren't the kind of thing that could be wronged. And then whatever you answer, 
however you answer that question, what changed? The second that attains in that human life, the very moment that that happens, at that moment, if I did the exact same thing to you, it would be the worst thing that I could do to another human being. Because that's the change it has to be accounted for. Right here, there's nothing wrong I can do to you. You answer this question and the very next second that happens, it's the worst thing that I can do to another human being. The same action, but a totally different, I mean, opposite moral evaluations, nothing to everything. Hmm. And the answer that they give us, and we use Stephen Schwartz's SLED acronym, will fall somewhere on the, the spectrum of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency. And we say none of those four can do the philosophical work necessary to carry the philosophical weight of that change. It's just much more obvious to those of us who have reflected on the idea of universal human value and dignity. If there is a wrong that can be done to all humans, that it can't be grounded in size, it can't be grounded in a level of development. Even if you're talking about rational capacities, ability to understand things, conscious awareness, all of those are degreed, all of those are episodic, all of those come and go, all of those are shared in unequal quantities. The only thing that we equally share is our, is our humanity. And so we say, what makes us human? What makes us valuable humans? is our identity as human beings. That's the best explanation for our intuition of universal human rights. And if you want to divide human, humanity up into two different categories, you're going to have to answer two different questions. Number one, who gave you the authority to do that? Why do you get to draw a line through humanity and tell us that these people are valuable and these people are not? Who gave you the authority to determine what human life we can treat one way and what human life we can't treat another way? And the next question is, why should I ever believe you're right? If, if we believe in the existence of objective moral values and you invite me into killing human beings and I kill them and they were valuable human beings and we were mistaken in that regard, you have invited me into great injustice, great injustice. How could I ever believe you got this right? How could I ever believe that you have the knowledge that within you resides the knowledge of human family, that you have accurately identified a class of human life that we're allowed to kill and dispose of and use as a resource. When every other time, as Christopher Kayser says, every other time we've ever tried to divide the human family up in this sort of way, we've morally matured to realize that we never should have done that, that that was wrong, and that we always should have treated them better than that. We always should have treated them as equal human beings. Why should I ever believe that you, for the first time in human history, have successfully identified a group of human beings that we are justified in treating that way? Man. Wow, that's so good. Um, if you were to say, in the academic world, among kind of the, the sophisticated pro-choice advocates, do they tend to cluster around one of those particular items in the sled? Is there like a, is there a kind of a most common response to the pro-life position among if academics? Yes. If they are going to argue against the value of the unborn, if they're going to say that the unborn is not fully human and has no value, they're going to congregate in level of development and usually around some form of a conscious awareness argument. Uh, they may be like David Boonin, who I think, by the way, is the best pro-choice philosopher out there. And if you read his book, A Defense of Abortion, and he has another book that's coming out in April, who's, which name's escaping me, dealing with these kind of arguments. Um, and that's where he'll be dealing with a different category of argument there. If you deal, if you hear these kind of arguments, what they're going to say mm -hmm. is something like, Organized cortical brain activity. That's what David Boonin says. He says that until you have organized cortical brain activity, which happens somewhere between the 25th week of pregnancy and the 35th week of pregnancy, according to how he defines it, until then, you're, you don't have the ability or capacity to desire to stay alive. And, but once that's there, we can grant you 
sort of in a current desire to continue to be alive. And you say, well, you're the kind of thing that would desire to be alive, even if you couldn't communicate, articulate, or even understand those desires. And so now it becomes wrong to kill you. So they'll say that, he'll say that particular level of development. Now there's a lot of problems with that that would require a lot of going into. Uh, one of them is that the more you start to ask questions, well, what about people who are asleep? Well, that's where he comes up with the idea. Well, that's called an occurrent desire. Occurrent. So even though they're asleep, we can we can say that if we woke them up, they would immediately become awake and want to be alive. And then we say, what about people whose desires are corrupted? For example, uh, what about somebody who wants to commit suicide? Or what about somebody who has uh, you know has some other like let's say that they want to turn right and there's a bomb to the right and what they ought to want to turn is left. Uh, because that desire is a desire towards the end of the day. He said, well, if they're corrupted, if they've been brainwashed into being suicidal, if there's something functionally wrong with them and they can't, they cannot, their brain is driving them towards suicidal thoughts, he said we can give them what we call ideal desires, uh, which is this is the greatest moment of that book in the sense of that here is a, is a sophisticated pro-choice thinker that I feel be- – I, I learn every time I read his book, and I reread mm. his book all the time. I learn every time I reread his book, and every time I get to this, it's a breathtaking moment of lack of awareness because what mm. he says is um, th- I, I could define ideal desires, but I don't think I have to, which is crazy. <laughs> wow. And then he goes on to say uh, he starts to describe ideal desires. And basically what ideal desires come out to are goods to which you are ordered and and under another definition, another way of saying it. Well, goods to which you are ordered is natural law thinking. Natural law thinking is like the idea that you were made toward order and ordered towards some goods. And what he'll say is, well, of course you should want to turn left because to continue to live in is a good to which you're ordered. Of course, if you've been corrupted to want to die, you should, we should treat you as though you want to live because mm-hmm. continuing to live is, and he doesn't use those words, but what he basically comes down to in his argument is a good to which you're ordered. And we all understand mm-hmm. that. Well, goods to which you're ordered, natural law arguments, those aren't his arguments. Those are our arguments. Mm-hmm. And there's where you see something, and this happens a lot, where people go into someone else's worldview and they borrow the philosophical capital that they need to right. buttress an argument against that worldview. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you don't, you don't get that. That's not yours, that's ours. You don't get to, to stick your hand in here and it's like, okay, to finish my argument, I'd like to just reach over and grab some of your natural law stuff and use that to make sense of these ideal desires. No, 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 those are ours. You leave those alone. You know, if you're, if you're gonna explain ideal desires, you do that through your own argument. You, you bring that to bear through your own stuff. Uh, and so that would be one. Another one would be the arguments of conscious awareness that Peter Singer makes in dismissing their value. Peter Singer and Michael Tooley, several philosophers make this argument that being consciously aware is what makes you valuable. Most people, when they bring that to me, I'll say, do you even know what conscious awareness is? I remember a young man in California, by the way, he walked up to me when I got done speaking and he said, how dare you come here and be so inhumane as to say that a woman ought to be forced to carry her child. How could you tell, and he, and he started talking about rape too. He said, how can you be so inhumane as to force them? I said, okay, what do you think the unborn are? Could you talk to me for a minute? And he talked to me, he started talking to me about rational capacities, the idea that it's my conscious awareness, my awareness that I exist as a being and that I continue to exist through time that makes me valuable. And I said, well, when does that happen? And he said, what happens? I don't know. It's, well, you know, it happens months after you're born. It's really no good definition for it, by the way. And nobody's been able to supply a good definition, but we know it doesn't happen until months and months and months until after you're born. And he said, yes, okay, I, I agree with you. I said, okay, so would you join Peter Singer in saying that there's nothing objectively wrong with killing a newborn child? And he said, well, I guess in order to be consistent with my viewpoint, I would have to say that. I said, and then I, I interjected. I said, just for the record, 
there's no virtue in a vicious consistency. You're not required to be consistent with bad ideas, but we'll keep going with this, all right? Um, you know, okay, so you think that I said, what I'm saying is if I put an onion on the table and I put a child on the table, and you, like Peter Singer, believe that conscious awareness gives that newborn child value, and that newborn child is not consciously aware, and there's no one on earth that is consciously aware that cares about that human being such that I would frustrate their desires for that child to continue to live, because that's the only value that Peter Singer is going to give a child or anybody who's arguing for conscious awareness. Someone else wants them to continue to live, so I can't frustrate their desires. So I said, I've got a baby who's completely unrelated to anybody at this point, and then I got a, an onion on the table, and I take a sharp knife, and I chop through the onion, and I continue to go across the table, and I chop through that child. Mm. I said, would you say those are morally the same acts? Mm. Wow. They're both amoral acts. No, there's no moral nature to them whatsoever. The chopping up an onion and chopping up a, a newborn that has no one that cares about it is the exact same kind of thing. And he said, yeah, I'd open it. In order to be consistent with my viewpoint, i got to say yes. Hmm. He said, okay. And I go back to narrating the conversation, which I mentioned earlier. I said, can I, can I narrate the conversation just so that we can get a handle uh, on where we are so far? Because I want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting any reviews. And he said, absolutely, go ahead. I said, when you first came up to me, he also held up his hand for me to stop just held it up in front of me and he said stop right there i said what and he said when i first came up to you i asked you how could you be so inhumane as to force somebody to be to give birth i called you inhumane and i just told you there's no difference between killing a newborn child and chopping up an onion hmm. and, wow. and you could just see the weight of that realization come crashing down on him and 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 then he he said I gotta go. I said no, I don't want you. I don't want you to be. I wanted to have a respectful conversation. I just want to talk to you. And he said no, no, no. It's not you. He said, um, I just have a lot to think about. You know, I it, the, I have a lot to process right now, and and I'm just realizing that I have a lot of really strong opinions, but I haven't really thought through what they mean yet. Uh, and so. That is the, those are the two sophisticated, they're not human arguments. Now, there's another argument that says they are human, we should be allowed to kill them anyway. Uh, and that would be the next most sophisticated argument that you hear. But those would probably be the two most sophisticated of that view. Wow. Um, that's, that's intense stuff. If, if our listeners are wanting to go and dive into this a little deeper, what, are, what would you recommend to them right off the bat? So, to read? Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, there's my website, merelyhumanministries.org has material on it. And we'll link uh, Scott Klusendorf and Life Training Institute have the case for life and uh, they have the caseforlife.org, I believe. And, and I know it prolifetraining.com. So if you go to Life Training Institute, you'll get great resources there. Uh, str.org has a lot of great stuff there. Now, if you're going to, to book level, if they want to start to, I would say if they were starting out, they should read Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. Okay. If it's day one and they want to learn how to process this, this argument, I would go to Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. If they are more sophisticated philosophically, um, I would say, uh, and, that, and, and I mean this, they need, to be, they need to understand the basic arguments. Then from the pro-life position, I would say Francis Beckwith, Dr. Francis Beckwith's Defending Life, and Christopher Kayser's uh, The Ethics of Abortion, those two books. Uh, and then if they want to read the best arguments um, for the other side, I think Kate Greasley, who just wrote a book, I, I, it's in the other room right now, I believe it's called Arguments for Abortion. 
uh, and David Boonin's The Ethics of Abortion would be the two on that side that I would read to understand the other to understand the other position better. Those would be just a few resources that I would say uh, that, that tackle it. I, I think Christopher Kayser and Dr. Francis Beckwith's book do a great job at dealing with them with the, the best objections of the day. I have done a lot of reading from the other people and I never walk away from it, you know, troubled or anyway, find my pro-life views undermined. But I do think Greasley and Boonin represent the two best from the pro-choice position right now. Um, okay, so let's move um, then from the from the particulars of the abortion issue. But I want to ask you this, just in your own experience. So, have you seen any shift? I'm going to ask you uh, three different areas in the academics on this issue. Uh, two, have you seen shifts like a one-on-one conversation and with your lectures with people? And then three, have you seen a shift in the overall kind of popular view of abortion in our nation since you've started doing work in this area? Uh, on the academic level, I would say, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I once had the privilege of having a conversation with Francis Beckwith after one of his talks, and, and he was saying, you know, after 40 years of arguing about this, we've got this pretty well mapped out, you know, and, and the pro-life position at a philosophical level and a scientific level is a very strong position, uh, and what you get from the other side, we've got that pretty mapped out, too. Uh, I, I think that, so you're not seeing transfer. So what you see in the argument forum is old arguments come back. I, like I said, David Boonin has another book coming out, but it's not going to be a new kind of pro-choice argument. He is going to go back and do Judas Jarvis Thompson's violinist again, and he's going to try to re-buttress it up against criticisms of the, that I think were pretty substantial, not just, by the way, from the pro-life side. Kate Greasley, who I mentioned earlier, it's got one of the best chapters on the violinist argument that there is out there. Uh, that's that argument I mentioned that says that the unborn are human uh, but, and valuable, but still should we should still be allowed to kill them. And she says we just need to drop that argument altogether from the pro-choice position. That's her position from the other side. She said it's just not it's not a good argument. Uh, so it's, he is responding to criticisms on that. So you're going to just see that the same argument is being revisited and oftentimes tweaked. Okay. But I don't think you've seen anything on the academic front that has changed dramatically since I came in. And I think that's probably due to what, what Dr. Beckwith said. You know, he Frank said, look, we just, we've been doing this a long time. We're good at it now. You know, and so it, it, we've had this argument now. And, and Frank and other people, I think, would say, uh, look, I mean, we've pretty much won these arguments. I mean, we're, we're, there isn't a good counter argument to the things that we're saying at that academic level. One-on-one, um, -on -one, let's say uh, – what I see is more emotion. Okay. I see, I see more emotionally driven arguments. And you see people, uh, it used to be people were terribly apathetic about this one-on-one -on -one when I would talk to people afterwards. Now I see people more in conflict, personally. Uh, when, when you talk to them, they're torn. They're torn between what they have been told uh, by the powers that be and, the, and what, you know, I know Dr. Robert George from Princeton University always talks about these brights, these luminaries, the cultural makers, uh, they, they have an influence on these young people. And so when you talk to them and, you know, they've had Jennifer Lawrence and a bunch of people that they just like uh, ripping on pro-life view and, and, and extolling feminism. And, and so they, they see that as something worthy. And then you're standing in front of them and countering that, but not countering it in just a hateful, awful way, but just picking apart their arguments. There's a level of confusion there where you can see they're torn because uh, most most people, and I had a friend, I talked to one of my board members this morning, and I said, look, you, what you got to realize is whatever you see in the, the, the media, most people 
when they under when they start to begin to understand the implications of it, they're, they're good, and not, not like good in the sense like anti-Christian theology, like they're basically good. But and what I mean by that is that they have some concept of common grace, and and they they understand objective moral values at epistemological level, and they and they don't want to hurt other people. And when they when they realize that this is something bad, they they start to, you can see them saying, okay, well I've heard all these other things, but man, this just doesn't sound right. And so I see more emotion and more confusion. Now, on a cultural level, there has been a huge shift, okay. meaning that when I first started talking 10 years ago on this subject matter, right, the, side, the other side on this issue, their tactic was to ignore us. They believed we were irrelevant, that, that we were uh, holdovers from a, a relics from another generation, and that the world had just moved past us, and that this was all settled. And what's happened is that they realized too late what Frank Beckwith was saying, that the, the academic level, the other side, the pro-life side, is cleaning house. And so, and, and that is having an impact on the world, and people are starting to skew away from them. More to the point, now we've seen this even ramped up now, they believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and that they were going to get the chance to appoint probably three Supreme Court justices over an eight-year period that they had control of everything, and that they were going to codify these rights and laws under the Supreme Court for generations to come without challenge. And the shock of Donald Trump winning, whatever you think about Donald Trump, the shock of him winning, and then subsequently him putting conservative justices, or what he believes to be conservative justices on the Supreme Court, has put the a fear into the other side that and, and it's animated them and so they show up angry more uh and they and they they you see more attempts to shout you down or you see more confrontation from the other side and more protesting from the other side uh and and i remember the, the, i think the dumbest thing i ever heard and i don't mean to be rude to this person but i was going to speak at nc state a couple of years ago and i saw some person that opened up a counter thing to my being on the campus where they said we've read his stuff we've heard his talks we don't think he is, you know, I'm not, I'm not like some firebrand coming in there to tear their place apart. But if anybody is going to be triggered and needs a safe space, we're going to have an alternative place for you to basically come and hide while the big bad Jay Watts is on your campus. Oh, wow. uh, which is just, it's ridiculous, right? But, you, but this, this more this sense of this is, it's harmful to disagree with me. You hurt me and you hurt us and you're bad guys and you're hateful and you're, this, this type of emotional ramped up rhetoric is new. They used to ignore us. Now they can't ignore us. And you see this, by the way, we're talking about the Reproductive Health Act that was just passed in New York. This was passed because for the first time since, since it became a law, these people are really concerned that Roe v. Wade's going away. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So they're trying to buttress their, or, or support their states or get their states where they want them or make sure the law in their state says what they want it to say prior to Roe going away. And that's, that's caused this, this, this ramp up in contentiousness and anger and emotion and showing up screaming and yelling and trying to shut down events and don't let them talk and don't give them an audience and shut them down on social media and shut them down in all these places. And all of these efforts to basically marginalize and minimize the, the message rather than engage it, because engaging didn't work. So now all they have to do, their only thing that they're left with is to stop us from talking altogether. And that's not going to work either. So in your opinion, is, is there a chance? Could Roe versus Wade be overturned? or? Oh, yeah, I think a really good chance at this point. It's difficult to know exactly what Gorsuch 
uh, I think Gorsuch is probably easier to predict than the others. Uh, you know, Kavanaugh, it's hard to know exactly mm-hmm. where he'll come down. Roberts is a real question, too. Would one of them jump at the chance to be the next uh, Kennedy and the, the one in there that is, that is the power player that everything swings through them? Who knows? I mean, that's the thing about Supreme Court nominations is once you put them on the court, yeah, all bets are off because you can't mm-hmm. remove them. And you, have, you really have no idea what they're going to do. I mean, yeah, the, we had one of the most we have we've had people go in there supposedly as conservative that have became very liberal once they got on the court or progressive in the way they, they decide cases. We've had people go in there supposedly liberal, or skewed towards the other way in some of their decision making. Uh, and so you're, you're it's no way to know what's actually going to happen. But I do think that there's a real reason to believe that Roe is threatened in a way that it wasn't before. Now, here's the thing, though. The end of Roe is the end. And the end of Roe just kicks it all back to the states. I see. So okay. What Roe does is, is Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, all of these cases, uh, what they do is they make it impossible for the states to make decisions based on the moral decisions or the moral outlook or the, the moral nature of the constituents within that state. They say that there is a fundamental right to have privacy that extends to the right to get an abortion that the states are not allowed to interfere with. So if, if Roe goes away, it goes back to the states and the states get to make those decisions. That's a, that's a necessary step to get to where we would like to go. The end game for the pro-life movement is a culture that accepts that abortion is immoral and that accepts laws that reflects that. So we want a culture that believes in the immorality of abortion and is willing to accept laws that reflect that belief. That's the end game for the pro-life movement. The defeat of Roe is just a necessary step to get there because what that does is that puts all the arguments local. Suddenly we're arguing with people in our state, people who we can actually influence and hopefully change their mind and we can get things done at that level where as opposed to now, we're just told you're not allowed to argue about it at all. And so I do think with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, there's at least a chance that Roe would go away sometime um, because it's not a great law. I mean, even people who review it from the other side, I'll say, look, Roe is not great law. They've tried their best to fix it with Planned Parenthood versus Casey and then do ideas, introduce ideas like undue burden and change it from trimesters, which is meaningless, to viability, which is at least a marker they think is somehow tied to a term that is medically, uh, medically relevant. Uh, but it's, there's enough there that it can be picked at that you can ultimately undo it. Uh, and then it just becomes what are each one of the states. We go back to the pre-Row world where the states. And that's what New York has done. New York has prepared itself for the end of Row with the Reproductive Health Act. Yeah, we, that's what we were going to ask about in that context. So can you give a quick uh, explanation of what happened with that and how that impacts this overall? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's rare in our country right now to have a state where all three houses – the, all three branch we have the the state house state house state senate and executive branch of the state belong to democrats in new york that was one of them they just they've got the state senate state house and the governor cuomo and so what happened was uh, cuomo came in and said look in the first hundred days of this new reality of having all three of these we're going to put together a, pro- a progressive agenda and on that progressive agenda he wants to make New York, the most progressive state in the, in the country. And so he says, in order to, well, the first thing we're going to do is a reproductive ha- act, and we're going to, reproductive health act, and we're going to enact that on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, January 22nd, 1973, being the first, the day Roe v. Wade was announced. So what it, what it did was, is multiple things. It basically, now you'll, you'll hear, if you look online, people are going to say, well, it made abortion illegal through the third trimester or, or late-term abortion legal. That's true. 
and, and but what not really the way people are saying it because it reflects the national law. Somebody came to me and said uh, people are saying this and they're saying we're lying by saying that it allows third trimester abortions. Like, but first of all, get the third trimester thing out of here. That was Roe versus Wade, but that that's been dropped in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Nobody's talking about that. The disbelief that it allows late-term abortions <laughs> is born out of an ignorance that people have about what the laws in the United States are. And the law in the United States says. Right now, through the culmination of, of several different cases, it starts with trimesters and Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade says, first trimester, you can't, no state can restrict access to abortion. Second trimester, trimester states can consider restricting access to abortion. Third trimester, you can restrict access to abortion. But then Doe versus Bolton, which was the companion piece to Roe v. Wade, comes out at the exact same time. And it says, you must include a health exception in there and it defines health exception not as the life of the mother and the physical health of the mother but it says all factors must be included and those are familial those are psychology psychological those are emotional it's the age of the mother it says all factors and it said that the reason it's doing that is to give the medical professional broad latitude and being free to choose to perform an abortion and that the determination of whether it's a health risk or not should always be skewed towards the side of the mother and so this health exception says any limits that the federal government puts on when you're allowed to not to force people to, to not be able to perform abortions are overridden, overridden by this health exception. Planned Parenthood comes versus Casey comes along in 1992. It dumps trimesters. It introduces viability as the marker. And then it says that we're keeping the health exception. And so New York is online with that now. New York has said that pre-viability there can be no restrictions on abortion. Post-viability, you can have restriction on abortion, but if the health of the mother is in jeopardy, then we're allowed to, to perform abortions. But that health exception is in, the, is in the tradition of Doe versus Bolton's health exception, which is familial, emotional, psychological, age, anything. It's that all factors are relevant to the health. So yes, throughout the United States, it is a constitutionally protected right to have an abortion through all nine months as long as you can find a doctor who is willing to say that the health of the mother is in jeopardy by some definition of health that was listed. And New York has just affirmed that. And then the other thing that they did was they lifted off all penal codes in the state that refer to the unborn. And what I mean by that is say someone came up and punched a pregnant woman in the stomach and put her in a hospital that caused her to miscarry. Prior to this, they could have been prosecuted both for the assault on the mother and for causing the death of the unborn. New York said, wipe that out. We don't want them, we don't want them thinking about the unborn at all in the penal code. We don't want to have to introduce that because that introduces the idea that the unborn are persons that we have to consider. And that's just going to be a mess. And it has shown up as a mess in other cases in New York. And they, so you can see this coming. Uh, and, and so there's this outrage but the outrage is not because New York has done something new. Because, by the way, New York is, is one of the leading abortion states. Of the, California probably is by a long stretch, but they don't report their numbers to the CDC. New York reports their numbers. And by the most prominent number, the most recent numbers that we have on New York is somewhere in the neighborhood of 94,000 abortions a year in New York. Sixty-something of those thousand of those coming from New York City. There are only – there's half as many abortions in New York City 
as there are live births. And when you're talking about the black community, there are as many abortions as there are live births in New York City. Uh, the, the next one down from that of states that report, by the way, is Florida. And they're somewhere in the 64,000, 63,000, I think, and uh, somewhere around you know 30,000 less. And then right after that is Texas at like 50,000. And then you get down to states like Georgia in the 30s. Uh, so it's like, it's not like New York was already was a good place for the unborn prior to the Reproductive Health Act, right? It was already uh, one of the leading states as far as the number of abortions they performed. But what they've done is said, look, what I mentioned earlier about Roe is true of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You as a state are allowed to consider the interest of the unborn after viability. What New York did was they made it very clear in their law, we don't and we won't. We're allowed to, but we're not going to. As far as we're concerned, the unborn are not the subject of rights in the state of New York. And so that means you are open to all sorts of things. By the way, that means illegal abortions can't be prosecuted in New York. That means that, uh, you know, it opens up the door for physicians' assistants, nurses, and other people who are not qualified to perform those. And the only thing you could prosecute them for would be practicing medicine without a license. Nothing to do with the life of anybody that would be hurt as a result of that. So, um, it's a it's a it's it's an interesting thing that's going on there right now, and and the problem was when this first happened, I told people I was like New York's not going to be the last, because they're doing this to protect themselves against the end of Roe. Vermont didn't even wait 24 hours before they stepped forth and said we have 91 Vermont legislatures agreed to a, a, a proposed bill that said in Vermont the unborn have no rights, none whatsoever, just a blanket statement. The unborn have no rights, no legal protection, no legal recognition in any way whatsoever in the state of Vermont. There is nothing wrong you can do to an unborn child in Vermont. Whew. Wow. Wow. Um, well, sorry, I'm dominating all the questions here, guys. Um, but I, one real quick uh, answer on this one, and then Nerva's got one more for you because I know Stephen's got to run up to this. But um, um, so a victory, you know, an overturning Roe versus Wade, would that be, a, a, you think, a major statistical victory in lowering abortions? Or do you think it would pretty much stay the same? People would just go to different states and that you just have to do the long term thing of trying to change the moral view of the nation? With the, the only way to evaluate that, it's a great question, by the way. The only way to really evaluate that would be to consider what pre-Roe United States was like. It's the best that we can determine with the data that we had. And there were far fewer abortions in pre-Roe United States than there were in post-Roe United States. I've seen people try to make the case that there were an equal number or a million every year of illegal abortions in the United States. There is no statistical data to back that up. And even when Guttmacher and Planned Parenthood tried to make that claim, I pulled up the argument where they make it, and within like two or three paragraphs, they refute that statement altogether with a data point that they offer without realizing. I don't think they I don't think they were even aware of how they were undermining their own argument. So there really is no I mean what you're probably looking at on a generous end is somewhere in the, because it was legal in a lot of the places like New York and Hawaii and California and other places. So um I don't know. You, yeah, I mean you'd probably see a reduction, yeah, if we look back on the way it was pre row. Uh, that's the only way I think we can get it. So you are going to see a reduction in the number of abortions. You're going to see an interesting number of fights. One thing that has happened over the last 20 years maybe, but especially in the last 10 years, is you have a lot of people that just have no interest. I mean, the abortion industry is struggling. The reason they want physician assistants to be like PAs to be able to do abortions in New York is because it's getting harder and harder to find doctors that will do them. Uh, 
for two reasons. Number one, some of them are just morally opposed to it. And number two, some of them just say, look, it's just nothing there worth the headache of being an abortionist, right? I mean, it's, it's just a, it's basically declaring yourself in the middle of this battle. And I just have no interest in that. So I can just pursue other forms of medicine and not be involved with it. So either a moral or pragmatic reason to not do it, it really is getting harder and harder to find doctors that are willing to perform abortions. They just want very little to do with that. And, and so abortion facilities are disappearing for multiple reasons and uh, it's harder to staff them. It's just, it, it's already seeing, so, so this is some of the reason we see for decline. Access is harder to get to. Will you see women travel? That's one of the things that they say is like, well, rich women will still travel and get their abortions where they want to get them. Well, sure. Um, another thing I hear people say all the time is like, if you make it illegal, there'll still be abortions. You're absolutely right. Um, is, you know, as I, one, guy, one guy brought that up to me, he said, well, get rid of it. I said, that's right. Uh, how about murder? You know, is, is murder illegal? He said, yeah. He said, people still murder each other? He said, yeah. I said, how about the, you know, child abuse? Is child abuse illegal? Yes. I said, people still abuse children? Yes. How about rape? Rape illegal? I said, yeah. People still rape? I said, yes. Yeah. Okay. So the job of moral law, of law, and people say you can't legislate morality. It's nonsense. It's the only thing you legislate. All, all laws are somebody's morality. I mean, it's, it's not even like you, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate without morality or somebody's moral judgment coming to bear. Uh, and so when we, we have a law like it's wrong to murder somebody, the goal isn't to eliminate all murder altogether, although that would be great. The goal is to put into place a, a legal system that reflects the moral nature or moral decisions or moral determinations of the culture in which that legal system exists and to limit that evil as much as possible. And by making it illegal, we can police it, we can arrest, we can punish. And so we give ourselves the ability to limit evil, not to eliminate it. All the only way to eliminate evil would be the coming of Christ to reconcile us all to him and judge the quick and the dead. So that's, that's the elimination of evil, right? right. This, is, this isn't about that. This is about trying to create the most just society we can in a lost world. And in there, right. we pass laws with the effort to limit immorality right. as best that we can by creating a structure that gives us the ability to deal with it effectively, as opposed to just ignoring it and say, well, I can't stop it, so I guess let it happen. Right. Uh, no, that's that's okay. Uh, Nervy, you had yeah, um, thank you so much, first of all, for all of your insight and, and how you've articulated the arguments. But I just want to say, I've in the past, I've been in conversations with friends, and they would say things like, people who are pro-life are, are very focused on one issue and care less about other issues in society involving, like, for instance, Black Lives Matter or poverty. Um, how would you respond to that? And, and I want to engage better in conversations and be. That's, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. And you do get that objection a lot when people say, well, you're like a one issue voter. You're too obsessed with this. There would be two things that I would point to. Number one, there's an article called The Lazy Slander of the Pro-Life Movement. I would always mm -hmm. encourage anybody to look up that article. It's called The Lazy Slander of the Pro-Life Movement. It does a great job at answering this idea that Christians and pro-lifers are only all we care about is the unborn. You don't care about the mother after they're born. Uh, the facts just don't come to bear on that. I remember a guy coming up to me, a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill, when I was there interacting with the, the student body, and he got mad, like like big mad, came up to me and said, uh, you know, are there Christian adoption agencies? It's like, well, yeah, like the, the largest private adoption agency in my state, as far as I know in the nation, are Christian adoption agencies. So, sure. It's like, uh oh. <laughs> okay, he just wandered off. I was like, what, sure. "What did you think we do? I mean, yeah. what do you think 
yeah, we, we have shelters, we have adoption agencies, yeah, we're doing all this stuff. I work for a pregnancy resource center where we, we don't just take, we don't just try to convince people to give birth to their children. We take care of them with supplies and classes and we'll find them places to live and we'll follow them for two years of their life, giving them baby needs and the woman clothing and we chain her for job if she wants job training and help her to, to educate her and, and raise her to, to, to raise her children, educate her so that she can raise her children more effectively. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, we're doing all of those things. Uh, but the, the idea, though, I remember one young man in Indiana who came after me on something like that. He said, well, I'm Christian and I'm pro-life, but I also think that there's other big areas. I said, okay, so why are you pro-life? And he said, I'm pro-life because I believe that the unborn human, I believe everything that you said in your argument is true. They're human and that we have the ba same basic duties and obligations we have to other people. I said, okay, great. All right, so let me ask you this. And I said, I want an honest answer. Do your best to answer this. He said, okay. I said, I have an issue. The issue is the value of human life. In our country alone, in the United States, one million innocent human lives, by your definition, are being destroyed every year through this, actively killed on our corners in these places where out in the public where people can see them. It's not like we don't even know where it's happening. One million human beings being destroyed every single year. What's your next issue? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what? And I said, well, you just said you, you found fault in the idea that you think that I might be too animated about this particular issue. I'm telling you that this first issue that we're discussing is an issue where the valuable human beings that you recognize as the image bearers of God, fully valuable, and we have the same basic duty and obligations to them that we have to any other human being. That my issue has one million of them being destroyed every one million every year. What's your next issue? And he said, I don't know, foreign policy? Okay. Well, that's, that's great. Where, where in foreign policy do we have a million Americans being killed every year? Just, just help me to understand. I'm not saying foreign policy isn't important, by the way. I'm very into foreign policy. But where is the moral urgency to reply to that, to respond to that with the same force? Uh, you know, we had a time where something like this happened with slavery, chattel slavery in the United States. And at that time, as you see the nation dividing and, and, and drawing into camps, you see people having to wrestle with this where they're saying, look, you know, they're sure there are other issues, but in one of these issues, millions of human beings are being held in bondage and servitude and their families are being divided and they're being abused and tortured and killed and they're being denied education and that you have places where people learn how to read against the will of their slaveholder and have their eyes burned out. And you have, you know, we have, we know what's going on. There are other issues, but what raises the level of this? That's, and so, you know, we have to be able to morally prioritize, right? I mean, is there any wonder why I'm animated about this? Now, maybe they may respond, well, I'm just not convinced that the unborn are human. Great. What are they? And, and then we go back to what I was talking about earlier. Answer the question then. What are they? What are the unborn? See, if you're convinced that they're human, you can't possibly find an issue that raises to the level of moral urgency that this does. A million human lives lost every year through the intentional destruction of our offspring before they're born. If you don't believe they're human, you have the responsibility to answer what they are and why we're allowed to do that, do that to them, then answer the question, what are they? And, and, and then I think we get to it because it's not true that we don't care about other issues. It's not true that we're not focused on other issues. But if we approach this with a certain moral urgency, shouldn't that be understood? And 
you know, even Louis C.K., who, who in his, you know, as much trouble as he's in now, last year, the year before last, he came out with a, a comedy routine. And, you know, I don't advise you to listen to him because he's just horrifyingly, uh, you know, obscene. But he, he did cover this idea where he said, look, pro-lifers believe that's a human being, that it's a baby, and we're killing millions of them every year. So what did you expect them to do? How do you expect them to respond? They ought to be responding with that passion if what they believe they believe is the truth of what's happening in the world around them. And so, and, and when I'm asked by people, how do I have a conversation with somebody about this issue? I say, start with where I told you to start. Tell them, I'm not gonna ask you any questions uh, in the sense of I'm not gonna confront you on my views. I'm not gonna tell you what I believe. I know what I believe. I'm not gonna argue my position. I know what my position is. I want you to answer a question for me. You think that abortion is a right. You think that women ought to be able to, to get abortions. You think that we ought to protect it under law. Would you answer this question for me? What do you think the unborn are that we're allowed to do this to them? And I promise you I won't share my views with you, but I may ask you questions about your views to understand it better. And that gets us going into a conversation where they don't feel like you're going to attack them and throw your views in their face, and you create a space where they're capable of starting to articulate their views. And very much like that young man I mentioned earlier who all of a sudden realized what he was arguing for was ghastly and immoral, uh, you, can, you can oftentimes get them to hear themselves saying things and come to their own conclusion about that just is not right. What I'm saying doesn't sound right. That's powerful. Thank you, Jay, so much for joining us today and sharing all those views. And for the listeners, we're going to put links to all the resources that Jay talked about today in the show notes and to the ministry that Jay started. And so thanks again, Jay, for joining us on the Free Mind Podcast. Hey, thank you guys for, for letting me come on. It was great. Don't you love me?